This episode of the Policing Matters podcast is sponsored by LexisNexis Risk Solutions. Learn more about how the accurate virtual crime center can help you solve more crime and find non-obvious connections at risk.lexisnexis.com backslash A-V-C-C. Well, hello and welcome back, and thank you for listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Well, today we have a very special guest, and he is talking about a a huge issue to law enforcement. Law enforcement officers are often put into difficult situations where they may need to make immediate decisions on levels of force needed to stop an attack, to defend others or themselves, or possibly to use in in order to effect an arrest of a resisting offender. Well, today I'm speaking with Henner Gracie, world-renowned jujitsu expert, practitioner, and chief instructor at the Gracie University. Welcome, Henner Gracie. Thank you, Jim. Honored to be here. And uh, I know we've been trying to make this happen for quite a while. So I appreciate your persistence. And I hope to make a, a very educational discussion here for all of the, the Police One family and the listeners all around the world. And I'm and I you know I'm on the blue team. I believe in law enforcement. I believe uh, we have a lot of work to do, but uh, it's been a huge honor of my professional career. I mean, since I was 16 years old with my father leading the way then, um, you know, it's been a huge honor to work so closely with so many law enforcement professionals. And even though I'm not a cop, like I say, I'm on the blue team and I believe in what law enforcement is, who they are. Some of the best people I know are police officers. And, uh, and it's always very rewarding to know that we're able to do some work that is truly being used every single day and is saving lives. Well, that's great. It's great to hear. Encouraging. I'm sure the uh, listeners, our law enforcement listeners, uh, will be really appreciative of that. So let's get right into it. So as an expert in self-defense and bringing an attacker under control, I know you've been following the current use of force discussions in policing. And I want to know, what are your impressions of the debate, the national debate, that seeks to significantly reduce the physical tactics of an officer with a resisting or attacking uh, suspect? Um, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a literal disaster, um, this discussion about reducing funding and reducing training or reducing um, capabilities, officer capabilities when it comes to going hands-on with uh, subjects. I think it has to go the other way. And I have, I have my hypothesis as to how it got to where it got. And I think that once people hear, I mean, listen, law enforcement knows everything I'm going to say right now. It's the civilians really who are, are oblivious to so much of the reality. And that's wh- how we got to where we are. And let me just start by saying that. And once I say this, you'll understand immediately why we're, we're running into so much trouble right now is that there, the public has an expectation of law enforcement, police officer capabilities when it comes to hands-on tactics. The public perceives every cop to be a Navy SEAL level trained professional. That's their perception. And, you know, the reality is cops get four hours every two years of defensive tactics, arrest and control, hands-on skill set that they, you know, disastrously need more of. But the disparity between what public perceives to be uh, officer capabilities and the reality of officer capabilities when it comes to hands-on training, not by their own choice, but by the deficiency of the training standards in states across the country, once that disparity is understood, 
it makes total sense why everyone's so disappointed. And I call that gap the police, the PD gap, police disappointment gap, the gap between expectation and expectation and reality. And the question is, right, why is that the case? Why does the public expect every police officer to be trained like a Navy SEAL when it comes to their unarmed, hands-on tactics? And the reason is because in so many other categories, police officers meet or exceed our expectations of them. How do I, how do I, what do I mean by that? Well, think about it this way. When you think cops should have uh, really nice uniforms, you see a police officer in the street and they're buttoned up. They look like the biggest boots, nicest badge, shiny everything, biggest tool belt. Everything looks so professional, right? Cops should have great cars so that they can go enforce the law. You've seen the inside of a police car. It's all decked out. It's like a freaking RoboCop car, right? And the cops are all, these are all souped up cars. Cops should have big guns. They got their sidearm, they got their taser, they got their pepper spray. In the truck sometimes, in the car, they have their, uh, their rifle, right, for high intensity activity. So in every one of these ways, Jim, the, the police officers exceed the expectations of the general public, right? But right. then cops, then the general public automatically infers, well, cops, if all of this is true, cops should also be able to hold down grandma without punching in the back of her skull. Right. That's a reasonable assumption to have by a human who sees so many other ways in which police officers exceed. When you have a riot, they're fully militarized. They have all the gear, all the shields, the helmets, the biggest guns, all the less than lethal tools and rifles and all these options. So you go, man, how can they have all this? But when it comes to holding grandma down without punching in the back of her head because they don't know what they're doing. How come they can't, we can't expect them to be able to do that less violently? Or how come in a situation like a, a Rashad Brooks, where you have a guy in Atlanta, Georgia, gets held down in the fast food drive through line by two officers holding the guy down, how come they couldn't hold him down? He gets up, takes the taser, runs away with an officer's taser after they took him to the ground, and then points the officers, the taser at the officers, and gets shot. Right. And in that situation, we call it a, a justifiable use of force because he pointed the taser at the officers. So that kind of meets the criteria there. When I saw that, I didn't ask myself, was the use of force justifiable when he pointed the taser at the officer? Of course it was. I asked myself, was deadly force necessary if those officers were capable of holding down Rashad Brooks with the most basic jujitsu skill set? So what's happening today is is this in the past and there was a high level of emphasis on and there still is on firearms training just to create a comparison mm -hmm. firearms the qualifications the officers have to go through on regular firearm quals and the incentives provided to officers for reaching higher levels of marksmanship i have them here on my desk lapd they give actual pins on the uniforms they can't see it because they're not watching this video but they get pins on their uniforms and many departments do this a pins for marksmanship uh rank and, and skill level. So the extent to which they incentivize, prioritize firearms qualifications is off the charts, right? And it always has been for recent history, right? It's always been the case. And then when it comes to the skill set that they're a hundred times more likely to use than ever pulling the trigger, they don't qualify, but once every two years for an hour within a four hour block of, you know, use of force policy, legal uh, restraint devices, you know, safety protocols, and then maybe one hour of how to hold someone down without punching their head in. One right. hour every two years, not going to cut it, right? 
Right. So, you make a you make a great point, Henner, and it, it is a perishable skill, right? So we need to stay on top of it, especially when we're talking about use of deadly force, potentially deadly force, like in a like firearm. like firearm. But the question is, Jim, why is it so different? Why for so long was and it never has been a priority, and today it's on, we're on the brink of of, of empty hand control tactics becoming the top priority in law enforcement, which is why I'm so enthusiastic about speaking about this, we are on the brink. And the question is, why now? Well, I've spoken to some people deep on the inside of law enforcement and privately, and the general consensus was this. If you go back 10, 15, 20 years ago, when you pull the trigger, every bullet leaves a trail. There's no denying that you pulled the trigger and that it hit the target wherever it hit. And you either missed the target or you nailed the target and that's it. The only question then was, was it justifiable or not? And then you have to go to the evidence and you have to go to the case and the reporting and all that. Here's the thing. Past over 15, 20 years ago, use of force, empty hand control tactics, punches, strikes, joint locks, control. They didn't leave a trail. But today, every empty hand use of force leaves a trail. So they neglected the skill set that didn't leave a trail because it was too hard to prove misuse of empty hand force 20 years ago. So why are we gonna waste time proving or in investing in tactics that an officer will never have used against them because there's no video evidence of the, a bruise will heal. The bullet wound will always be there. You'll always know what that bullet hit. And if someone dies, that life will always have been taken by the officer's bullet. So they invested in the skill set that they knew they were going to be liable for in the court of law. Today, we're finally seeing that empty hand uses of force and the problems that that training deficiency is causing. Finally, officers and their departments are being held liable for the misuse of empty hand force, if not in the court of law because of certain statutes and you know things that protect law enforcement officers, if not in the court of law in every case, in the court of public opinion. Mm -hmm. So now for the first time ever, every use of force, empty hand or not, leaves a trail because everyone has a camera and every incident is documented by 17 different lenses. So you have all these angles, all these perspectives to show, look, that was inappropriate. George Floyd, Derek Chauvin, that officer needs to be held accountable for his abuse of power. And in that case, it wasn't a, in, in, in a direct mis, uh, uh, mistraining. I think Derek Chauvin had character flaws that caused him to abuse his power. And I think even the law enforcement community recognizes that. But let's, aside from the Derek Chauvin, let's talk about all these, the Rashad Brooks and so many other cases where you might've had great police officers who used terrible tactics and ended up escalating to deadly force when they could have otherwise avoided it had they only been capable of neutralizing the situation with empty hand tactics more proficiently than their department prepared them to do. And that's the result of what we saw. And then the whole country is on fire as a result of the abuse of power. Many, many people will immediately pin on racism, which I can't say the, the degree to which, right? Racism exists in America, there's no doubt. And how, 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 how prolific it is in law enforcement, no one knows exactly. But what I can say is this, I can tell you, even the most, uh, the, the best cop in America, right? Let's assume there's a cop with zero racial bias, with expert marksmanship, a police officer who's truly the, the, the epitome of human character as a police officer. Even that cop, with the poor training that he or she receives, 
is exponentially more likely to rapidly escalate the level of force to a, a level of force that might have not otherwise been necessary because their prefrontal cortex is hijacked by the amygdala. And at that point, they're operating in a survival mindset, not in a rational decision making. Let's do this because of this. And here's the right level of force. When survival mode kicks in and the amygdala hijacks the PFC, there is no more conscious choice. So even the best cop in the world can pull the trigger too soon after the amygdala hijack. And as we know, the amygdala hijack happens when an officer experiences loss of control in a high stress situation. That's the definition. Mm -hmm. So the only way to reduce the loss of control possibility is to increase an officer's capability of controlling someone when things go south. And the only way to do that is through training. There is no shortcut. And here we are. Right. So, you know, it's great that you pointed out the example that you did, because here we are at this crossroads in American policing where many departments have disallowed neck or head restraints, chokeholds, and specifically the carotid that cuts the blow, the blood flow circulation uh, to your brain. And uh, in your opinion, uh, what kind of tactics are you proposing? I, I saw a great video that you put out where you show the, uh, in, in response to the NYPD uh, video that shows all of these uh, just mere body on top of suspect, whether you're sitting on top or uh, trying to restrain them from holding their arms back, that these are all now disapproved. So we, we've gone beyond some of these physical restraints now to even just body weight. And of course, because of the Chauvin incident, but now we're leaving officers with really restricted. And I think in the case you brought out, it, it's that awful but lawful look to whatever you're doing to the suspect, knowing that you're being videoed or that you have your body camera on. What are, what are cops going to be left with if not just open hands to firearms? Yeah. So there's a couple questions there, right? What am I proposing? And what do I think about the carotid restraints restrictions nationwide? So let's start with the carotid restraint and then we'll talk about what needs to exist in the absence of that restraint to make officers, to, to ensure officers are capable of enforcing the law in a way that is both safe to the civilians and to themselves. When it comes to the neck restraint, it's one of the safest techniques in the history of martial arts. It's a very safe, very effective technique. I, my family's been teaching it for 100 years. There has never been a death in practice and and deliberate practice and sparring, competitive sparring and practice, there is no recorded death in the 100 years that we're using this technique in a, in a safe environment and under, by people who know what they're doing and, and, you know, with supervision. The problem is when you subject, when you teach that to officers as the great tool that it is, and you teach them and you show them once every four years or once every two years or once in the academy and then they never see it again. Now you have someone who's 16 years in the job, remembers some kind of neck restraint, forgets the safety precautions, forgets the amount of time that it typically takes to, get, to uh, have effect. So they're all confused about the application of this technique and they're using it. And on top of that, Jim, it's exacerbated in its use by the amygdala hijack that that officer is experiencing in the altercation as a result of their poor training to begin with. So the misuse of the choke is, is not because they didn't learn the choke correctly. It's because they don't have the supplementary training to allow them to maintain prefrontal cortex activation in the, in the altercation. So if they feel like they've lost control in the fight, 
then they're going to do whatever they can, including a choke that they learn, you know, a neck restraint. Choke is a misnomer because you're blocking the blood, not the airway, but a neck restraint that you're using, you know, from 15 years ago in the police academy. So the point is this. I agree with the, with the, with the escalation of neck restraints only to be used at, at lethal force. In other words, at the same level of force that you would run someone over with your patrol car or shoot them with your gun or throw a rock at their head because someone's about to die. So you're going to save life or limb at that same level of force. The neck restraint must exist. Some states are going so far as to you're not even allowed to practice it, which my response is that's not reasonable, because if you can practice firearms and you can practice other means of deadly force, then why can't we practice a neck restraint that is there even when your firearm malfunctions? So that's a mistake. I'm going to call out law enforcement like it is, any state that's saying you can't do a neck restraint at any level, they're eliminating a tool that absolutely should be reserved and can be used at the lethal force level. Now, I would go so far to say that the neck restraint can and should be used at the intermediate force level in departments where the officers are given not only regular practice with the neck restraint, but also enough supplementary ground fighting, ground control tactics to maintain composure in a, in a in, a, in, a, in an altercation, right? To maintain that perceived sense of control that will allow and uh, continued prefrontal cortex activation. But to me, in this, in this spirit of let's eliminate neck restraints across the country, which is kind of this wave that's happening in it, and it may become a federal mandate, who knows? When that happens, here's the key. It's, it's more important than ever that every single officer be given the basic body-to-body leverage-based control tactics balance, body positioning, mount, guard, side mount, uh, back mount, all these positions of normal ground fighting positions. Every single officer must be confident from the offensive control posture and also know what to do defensively to stay safe and retain control of their weapons in the inferior position of these individual ones that I've identified. So every single officer has to know basic ground control offensively and defensively so that they can maintain control of a subject and not need to resort to a neck restraint or to a lethal force option. What you can't do is take away a neck restraint and then also take away the nonviolent jujitsu-based control holds that would allow you to hold someone down and enact an arrest. Because if you do that, what you're going to basically leave the officer with is uh, empty hand or striking tactics. You're going to leave them with baton, pepper spray, taser, and a firearm. So if all you have are these four options, right, of escalation, like talking, striking, pepper spray, taser, baton, and firearm, then guess what? You're going to escalate more rapidly through those options. But if officers are given, you know, nonviolent mount control, guard control, side mount control, takedowns, holds, joint immobilizations, joint locks, if they know these other skills, those are called buffers. And those buffers will reduce the rapidity of the force escalation by the officer, to the suspect's advantage, to the officer's advantage, to the department and the city's advantage from a liability perspective. So that's what happened in New York. They implemented certain reforms. Some were great regarding reporting and body cameras and certain things that would just create more transparency in terms of officer uses of force, which I am all for, right? I think everything should be reported. Everything should be visible. Everything should be on camera. I'm okay with that. However, that's only all good if you also give officers the tools to do their job safely. Because if not, you're going to have more catastrophes on camera. It's all you're going to have. So in the, in, the, in, the, in the reform bill that hit New York that I was like pulling my non-existent hair out to, to try to prevent from being signed, I told them, I said, listen, if you eliminate these nonviolent control options of jujitsu, 
because what they basically said is you can't do any technique that applies direct or indirect pressure to the subject's diaphragm in the course of an, intera- of a course of an, of an, an arrest, intentional or not. And the officer that does do that may be subject to criminal penalties of his or her own. So you could be a criminal robbing a bank. And if an officer takes you down, lays on your chest for 30 seconds to wait till backup gets there, which is the perfectly appropriate thing to do and very safe because you touch the diaphragm. So what happened, you could be arrested as the officer for carrying out the arrest against the criminal who was either hurting someone or committing a serious crime. Whether, so an injury not, was, whether an injury was suffered or not. Whether injury or not, that's what makes it intentional or not, injury or not. If you touch the diaphragm, you're subject to criminal charges. So my response to that is absolutely not. What's going to happen is cops are going to opt not to enforce the law out of fear of becoming a criminal in the process of doing what would otherwise be the right thing as a law enforcement officer. So you've paralyzed, you've literally handcuffed police officers now. Now, I get it. People want accountability. People want visibility. People want transparency on law enforcement. All of that is good. But the moment that you handcuff law enforcement to where they can't do their job in a way that is safe for civilians and for themselves, now you've created a situation where they're no longer incentivized to enforce the law. So for all the things that we love and need cops for, they simply can't do it. And that is the tragedy that happened in New York. As a result, two things happened retirement rates went through the roof at rates that we've never seen before in terms of officers leaving the force and crime is shot up at rates that we haven't seen in so long. So everything makes perfect sense because they made such a terrible decision. And this is a result of uh, city council members pressuring the city administrators and the mayor, and then ultimately them crumbling under this idea of, okay, we got to do what the city says now. So we don't have a big backlash here, but I think that was called overcorrection to the Derek Chauvin overcorrection in the, in the light of these recent incidents is okay. They, they're not doing it right level of force. So let's go all the way left and let's give them no ability to use force because if they touch a diaphragm, they're going to be a criminal. And you basically stripped cops of their, the most valuable skill set, which is to neutralize violence with less violence, right? Neutralize criminals with less criminality, but now you've made it a crime to enforce the law. I, listen, every cop and friend I have in New York and I have lots they're reaching out. They're saying, Henry, thank you for trying, but we're screwed over here. I'm going to retire in three years. The second I qualify, I'm out of here. And it's just so sad. So now New York is a lost cause unless they reverse the bill because they see the trend of retirements and they see the trend of crime increase. Unless they reverse it, they're in the review mirror. They're done. Now, the question now is what can we do? You included and everyone who has a voice or a platform to reduce the chance that other cities and states implement the same procedures and concerns, um, the same restricting uh, protocols in terms of use of force that New York has implemented. And if they do that, um, they're, they're, it's, it's done. It's done. And then policing, as we know it, in America. Now, so the question is why? Why is this happening in New York and why everywhere else? It all boils down to one thing. Cops are failing to meet the expectations of the public when it comes to the application of force. And what I'm saying is that that fact that cops are so inappropriate with their uses of force is when you finally realize, and every civilian I tell this to, hey, you know that a cop gets four hours every two years on average in America on jujitsu type ground control. I have students who do four hours in a week and they're just white belt beginner uh, hobbyists of jujitsu. A cop gets four hours every two years. When I tell that to the public gym, their their eyes light up and they go, wait a minute, what are you talking about? I say, I know, isn't it crazy 
that a police officer is asked to go enforce the law with four hours of jujitsu practice. And this is it. four hours of jujitsu is optimistic. It's not even that much. It's usually three hours of BS and one hour of some ground technique. I said four hours of jujitsu a year and they have to go enforce the law. I go so far as to say that police officers are the most undertrained professionals in America. There is no field of professional endeavor that asks the professional to do more with less preparatory training than asking a police officer to arrest a violent subject who doesn't want to be arrested and to do so in a nonviolent manner and a controlled manner. There's no one that's being asked to do more with less than asking an officer to arrest someone who's resisting arrest nonviolently with the training that they're not providing. It's number one, the worst in America when it comes to use. Now they're training many other skills. It's like, they're, it's, it's like this. It's like they're, 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 they're white belts at everything, but they're not black belts at anything in law enforcement. They know a little bit of everything, but each individual skill set, none of that digs deep enough. Now, the one that warrants digging fully deep is jujitsu, is defensive tactics, arresting control, because it's the one that is at the core and that is igniting so many of these fires around the country because it's go, the video goes viral, we're all in trouble. Well, Henner, amazing uh, expertise and analysis of, of where we're at right now. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor and we'll be right back. Accurate Virtual Crime Center helps accelerate your investigations by finding connections between public records and nationwide law enforcement data with just one search. With cutting edge analytics and data linking, law enforcement personnel can get a comprehensive view of people's identities. Evidence-based policing allows them to better target investigations, generate leads, and solve crimes. Using nationwide crime data, they can also detect patterns, predict upcoming events, and deploy resources efficiently. Accurate Virtual Crime Center helps police agencies be more effective in protecting and serving their communities. To learn more about Accurate Virtual Crime Center, visit risk.lexisnexus.com backslash AVCC. And we are back and I'm speaking with world-renowned jiu-jitsu chief instructor Henner Gracie from the Gracie Academy. Uh, he's been talking about uh, the perishable skills and the lack of training and physical uh, abilities and defensive tactics of police officers. Now, Henner, when I got in the police academy uh, back in the day, I, I went to a 19-week academy to begin with. Now, here we are in 2020, the, the academy can be upwards of 32 to 34 weeks of training because everybody's trying to get a piece of training to the police officers. Now, your three-minute Instagram video is right on the mark. It's both passionate and rational explaining use of force restrictions. And you make a plea to police chiefs across the country. So lay it out. What's your proposal? Uh, mindful that officers need to follow their own department's general orders and can't just use ad hoc or um, something they brought in without outside approval. Sure. So Jim, I recently became aware because I've been hitting this my head against the wall for the last, I mean, 15 years since I've been in charge of this program. My family did it before me and then my, it was handed off to my brother and I. So for 15 years, I've been running GST 
as the chief instructor. And since I've done that and become aware of the training deficiencies, the number of hours, because I love the courses that we teach. They're one week certifications and we teach 30 to 40 hours in a week for the officers. They become instructors. They leave super confident. We actually give them online access to all the material they learn so they can review it for the next two years throughout their certification period. This program, Gracie Survival Tactics, is the number one jujitsu-based, fastest-growing jujitsu-based defensive tactics archon school in America. But every time I do the course, I ask, I survey them. I say, hey, raise your hand if, you're off, if your department offers more than four hours of real jujitsu control tactics a year. For in-service, for in-service. And it's like this. Guaranteed four hours a year, you get like three hands out of 80 or 100 guys, right? So I'm like, this is so crazy. I don't understand. Because to me, the answer to all these viral videos of terrible uses of force, right? Uh, of course, there's some bad apples. We always talk about that. But by and large, it's because of training deficiencies. So the answer is so obvious to me that when I hear that this is the case unanimously across the country, I don't understand what do they, what, what's, what's blocking progress that I don't see. So I became frustrated with that. And over so many years, I finally got the answer that I've been looking for. Two of my local California officers who are very good friends and GST certified times 10. These guys said, Henner, you're never going to get the officers because what I propose is this one hour of jujitsu training per officer per week in each department. That has to be the case. And how do I know this? What's this based on? Any person who uses jujitsu in the field, any cop who uses in the field successfully, they become jujitsu students. They're hobbyists. It's part of their lifestyle. Now, currently they're training for, they're paying for it on their own, but one hour per week is, you have to do it because if you don't do it one hour per week, what are you, are you serious about anything? If you surf, if you skydive, if you, you know, if you like to do yoga, anything less than one hour a week, you're not a student of the art, right? So one hour per week per cop in America is my ambition. And that's bare minimum. And I said, why can't we do this guys? And they said, Henry, the reason why is because no police chief wants to, wants to deal with the IOD and the ROP concerns that much training will bring. I said, what do you mean? They said, IOD, injury on duty. If you have cops training jujitsu one hour a week on duty, um, the likelihood of injury goes up, workers comp goes up, medical insurance goes up, and now the whole thing's a mess, and now you have cops that are not working, injured because they stubbed their toe in a DTAC class, it's a big disaster. So finally it was like, oh my gosh, they're not preventing the training because they don't think it's necessary. The chiefs know it's necessary. They're avoiding the training because they're avoiding the injury on duty possibility. That's it. It's literally that simple. And then, of course, ROP, reduced officer presence. They don't want to have guys who are being paid to train when those cops could be on the street, when they're all about trying to tie up the budget and make sure they have the most officer presence because they want to make sure that there's enough presence in the street to uh, reduce the amount of time that it takes to respond to, um, to each crime. And less officers means more crime, so more delayed time and response times. So these two data points make perfect sense. Avoid the IOD, reduce the ROP. So now I'm like, wow, okay. Finally, I understand the, the roadblocks. So here's what I came up with. I came up with a plan to where, or a proposal to, and this, this was also, and then I said, well, tell me more, you guys. And they said, Henry, you should understand the model that fitness, applied to fitness throughout the country. When you have someone, a uh, police department, what they often do is they'll incentivize the physical fitness of police officers by saying, hey, you can go work out at these gyms, civilian, privately owned police gyms, and we're going to pay for it. The city is going to pay for your gym membership. And he said, hey, this is very normal at many departments throughout the country. I said, oh my gosh, that's crazy. Tell me more. He says, well, firearms, what happens is officers go and they do their own practice on their own time. But if an officer reaches certain qualifications, they get a pin for their uniform 
And that pin corresponds with an increase in pay. So there's a pay bonus tied to reaching certain marksmanship levels. I'm like, that's crazy. And with the fitness, if, and I said, how do they incentivize fitness? Because, you know, paying for gym membership is one thing. He says, well, they have a career point path opportunity, right? So there's a career path point system that if you are in great shape and you run a mile and a half under so many minutes, or you do this under so much time at that point, um, we can do incentives for the, uh, we can use incentives for the uh, fitness and give them career point promotion opportunities. So there's all these incentives that exist in law enforcement already. So my proposal was simple. I said, okay, this is how it has to work. Cops have to be permitted to train off duty at privately owned jujitsu schools paid for by the city, funded by the city, incentivized by the police department with pins, pay, promotion, all the same things they're already using for fitness and firearms, right? Defensive tactics, empty hand control tactics. We have to apply the same modes and models to make that successful so that these cops want to train and that they're enabled to because they're not going to go pay for their own training, nor should they have to. That's the only way this works is privately, private jujitsu to subsidize the training for police officers paid for by the city. And these, everyone I shared it with loved it. Chiefs were like, loved it. And the only concern that came up is the schools that they send these people to might be BJJ. Brazilian jiu-jitsu has to be the art because it's the only art that allows de-escalation. Whereas if you go to Krav Maga or boxing or kickboxing, you're going to escalate the level of force because those are violent martial arts. Whereas jiu-jitsu is a de-escalatory art at its nature. So they said, hey, no, the only problem is other cops going to these departments, the chiefs might be concerned about where they're going to be training because a BJJ school run poorly can also create some injuries off duty. That would be bad for the department. And I said, I know which is why the schools that would happen, that this would happen at would be certified Gracie University training centers that we already have hundreds of around the country and are opening more every month because I'm the only person who can go to the chief and say, chief, we're already trusted to certify your in-house DTAC instructors. I'm the guy, my brother and I are the ones certifying your staff instructors. We are the same organization that certifies these private schools. So all the quality controls, curriculum structure, law enforcement application of techniques, uh, all the video curriculum access, all the safety protocols, everything that they love about our law enforcement course is in place at these certified training centers, which is how and why I proposed this solution to the world two weeks ago. And the feedback has been off the charts. The Gracie Police Training Reform Initiative is on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and everyone's passing it up their chain of command. And the chiefs are reaching out and we're now opening schools next to police departments so that the officers can train in obviously in cities where we don't already have a school right many cities we already have one in places where we don't we're facilitating the opening of new locations so that these officers can train and get this subsidized training and it's been a great success well that's awesome and yeah i was going to ask you um but first post every state has a post uh, police officer standards and trainings and i'm sure if you pitched it as a defensive tactics uh, class, um, they would be quite interested. And um, when we talk about uh, incentivizing, you're absolutely right. Um, most uh, agencies have fitness levels that they'd like officers to maintain, and it, it could be part of that as well. So I, I don't know who would be against it. I think advocates are constantly uh, asking for more training for police. They're, they're making the same argument that you're making. I think officers themselves would love uh, more tools to be able to resort to rather than a weapon or, um, or less lethal to lethal force. So I don't see the downside of it. Um, I appreciate your time and wrapping up. I know this has got to be a busy time for you. I've seen the videos. Uh, I'd love to see you before Congress 
or before governors uh, to talk about uh, just what you said here. And uh, I'd love for this podcast to get out to the eyes and the ears of advocates and legislators uh, to, to hear what you're saying. Thank you, Jim. And listen, here's what I'll say is that today, the only officers who are sufficiently trained to deal with the challenges they face every day are the officers who pursue and pay for that training on their off time on their own. That's it. Any officer currently in America today who limits their training to what the department is providing is undertrained for the task they're being asked to do. That's the irony in all this is that they're just, I'm just asking for sufficient training for them to do the job that we're asking them to do, which is to deal with, in many cases, violent criminal offenders. They should be able to control those people and preserve life as often as possible. Preservation of life, right? So I don't think it's too much to ask for police departments and the cities to get behind this movement and say, yes, we need to facilitate the better training of our officers. Now, if it can't be done on duty in the department, on the facility, for other reasons, IOD, ROP, I understand. But let's be creative in how we facilitate the, 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 the subsidizing of this training. And I'm just glad to have come up with a formula that you listen to and go, wow, it makes sense. He avoids the chief's concerns regarding IOD and ROP, but he's still making it possible for the cops to get the training that they need. No one has proposed this solution yet. And here we are, and I can't wait to you know get this podcast out. And anyone out there who's listening, who sits in a position of influence and of decision-making capability, um, we're here to help. You can reach out to myself through any of my social media channels or reach out to our um, coordinator, Ty Best. He's at ty at gracieuniversity.com. He's the coordinator working directly with the chiefs to help set up training locations so that this additional supplementary training can happen. So we're, we're all hands on deck to solve this problem. And we're not going to wait, you guys, because another viral video, the country's going to be up in flames again. So we're trying to set it up to where we don't react to the viral video. We preempt the next viral video of inappropriate use of force for the people and for law enforcement. Because I'll tell you, there's never been such a tense relationship between communities and law enforcement. And to me, it's largely attributed to the poor defensive tactics and capabilities when it comes to going hands on. Because of every video we saw, Jim, a cop took someone down, tied him in a knot, put the cuffs on. No incident, nothing remarkable, just a good, well-trained cop. There would be no virility. And if there was no virility, there would be no ah, fire and there would be no anger from the community because that person deserved to get arrested. And it was done so with the appropriate level of force in the mind of the public. If that matches, if the level of force used matches what the public perceives as appropriate in a given situation because of proper training, there is no virility. It's unremarkable. It's unremarkable. And today, unremarkable arrests, meaning well done, properly executed, are remarkable because they're so rare. And that's sad. When, when, when unremarkable is remarkable, that's how you know that where something is backwards in all of this. Nice. Hey, thanks so much for your time, Henner. I wish you well. I hope you stay well. Uh, thanks for speaking out on behalf of law enforcement officers around the country. Uh, Henner Gracie, Chief Instructor at the Gracie University. And to our listeners, thanks again for listening. What do you think? Is your agency ready? Uh, has your agency restricted your use of force options? Does it approve outside training such as martial arts or mixed martial arts? Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. 
write us at policing matters at police one.com. That's policing matters at police one.com. Be well, stay safe. Thanks for your service. And I'm just if I may, Jim, if yes, I may, Jim, if I may, just the website, yes. gracieuniversity.com, gracieuniversity.com slash GST is where you can find more information on our program. And thank you, Jim, for all the great work. And uh, we appreciate everyone. And I'm on the blue team, you guys. Great to hear from everybody. We will uh, work with you guys in the near future. Thank you, Eric. Thanks a lot.